Hey, good morning, church family. Pastor Brandon here. Um, hey, I want to say thank you again for letting us into your homes to bring you God's word. Whether you're going to be at home listening to this in your car, on a run, on a walk, um, wherever you are, we are praying that God would speak to your heart clearly. Okay, um, a few things before I get into the message that I just want to talk about. Um, a few things that have been burning, not just on my heart, but on our heart sta um, staff's heart as well, is that, listen, students and teachers, we see you, we hear you, we're praying for you. If there's anything that we can do to come alongside of you as a church, either emotionally, even just spiritually, or even like tangibly, please let us know. We understand that this season is trying for you guys, and we want to be coming alongside of you as a church, praying for you. And thank you, teachers, um, nurses, doctors, all of those who are serving us, police, firemen, all that kind of stuff. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Um, we're coming alongside you in prayer. We pray God's blessings on you. Um, last Sunday was an exciting Sunday for us as a church. Outside in our courtyard at 10 a.m., we had the opportunity to see 12 people, okay? We had eight scheduled, and then there was four people who felt the Spirit stirring in their hearts. We saw 12 people get baptized, and it was such a beautiful testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. That's one of my favorite things is to celebrate baptism as a church family because it's it shows us what we're all about as a church. It reminds us of the power of the gospel. We saw lives transformed and changed forever by Jesus Christ. And it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. So next Sunday, okay, not, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we're going to be starting a brand new series. And I'm really excited about this series. I'm not going to tell you much about it now, but it also marks a new phase or a new shift for us as a church as it relates to our reopening plan okay so on the 27th of september we will still be having this service here for you online this isn't going to go anywhere we're going to have a message and a service directly for you because we want to minister to you wherever you are at however starting the 27th and the sundays following we will be meeting every sunday outside in our courtyard at 10 a.m not every other week, it will be every Sunday until we next get our feel for what the next phase is and the Lord will give us that direction. We're making our plans one day at a time is something that we've learned in this. However, today we are ending the series in Ephesians and, and I'm really excited about this because we're going to be looking at a passage that is outside of the letter of Ephesians but is still speaking directly to the church in Ephesus. Now, real quick, as a reminder, we have called this series Awake, O Sleeper. And that little line was found in Ephesians chapter 4. And the reason why we had this air is because we want to awaken our hearts and our minds to the reality of Jesus again. Not to say that we didn't believe in him, but a lot of times we can sort of drift away, get a little too comfortable, kind of lower our guard a little bit, or even, even forget the power and the beauty of the gospel. We can easily forget where we've been. We can forget what God has done by tearing down the wall of hostility, by making one new humanity, allowing us to have peace with God, but also peace with each other. The ability to forgive one another without feeling owed. Like this is the gospel and we see it portrayed through Jesus and we get to have the Holy Spirit as a deposit. It's a seal on our hearts. It's the power inside of us to live. But not only that, we are encouraged to pray for the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to understand the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, to know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ together as a church. 
I mean, what would it feel like? What would it look like, church, if we were truly awakened to these realities? And that's why we went through this, because it's out of this love, out of this revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done, calls us to live a certain way. And the world needs to see the church. Because Ephesians 3 reminds us that it's in the church and through the church that the manifold glory of God is on display. That's what the world needs. It needs us to be passionately in love for Jesus so that we would live lives worthy of the gospel, embodying the peace and the unity that the cross has attained for us so that the world would see the love of Christ. That's what we're doing, and that's what we've been talking about. But really, if we were to summarize it at the end of the day, the reason why we had this series was for you and I Again, to reawaken our love for Jesus like never before. And if we were to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, the very last verse of this whole letter that Paul wrote to those in Ephesus, he says to them, grace and peace. Oh, grace be with all, with all. Now watch this. Who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Our greatest gift, our greatest pursuit in this life is to love Jesus, to love him without being embarrassed, love him without even caring what other people will think about, loving him without being worried about being a fanatic. You just love him and you want to do things for him because you love him. You want to be in his presence because you love him. Church, we need to come back to that heart. And that's why I love, like last week, Nima did a great job filling in here online, talking about the Yomar God, where Paul would say, finally, from now on till when Jesus comes again, you got to stand your ground. you got to put on the armor of God. And ultimately, the armor of God is living out the gospel, putting on the gospel truths, standing on those truths, and praying and depending. Paul ended this letter strongly with an exhortation to the church embrace the gospel never forget the gospel look through life through the lens of the gospel see everything through the lens of the gospel have the cross of jesus christ on the backdrop of every single thing every decision every relationship it's him love him with an incorruptible love Now, folks, the church in Ephesus was an absolutely amazing church. I mean, absolutely amazing. And I want to kind of recap that a little bit for us for, um, because if I don't do that, then this message this morning might not make much sense. If Ephesus, okay, Ephesus was in Asia Minor, which is basically modern day Turkey today. It was nicknamed, Ephesus was nicknamed the Light of Asia, It was a beautiful city. It was the most influential city in Asia Minor. It had the greatest harbor. It had an amazing economy. The market was rich. There was four major highways that led into Ephesus. So everything converged there. They were a free city. Even though they were occupied by Rome, even though they were Roman ruled, Rome gave Ephesus the ability to self-govern because of their influence. Because of that, that means there was no Roman troops there, which is kind of a shock in that time. It was a wealthy city, 
highly influential, highly artistic. It was a converging point of so many different cultures and also religions. That means that Ephesus became a very, um, a city that was very loose in its morals. That's the safest way of saying it. It was the center of the worship of Artemis, or also known as Diana, which was the most sacred goddess in the Greco-Roman world. And in Ephesus resided the temple of Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And in that temple, the worship of Diana included, okay, it included all acts of sensuality. Sexual immorality occurred there. That was a normal part of the religious practice. The temple of Diana served as a sanctuary for criminals. It was a safe haven for them. That only perpetuated the filth even more in Ephesus. In fact, historians, I'm, I'm going to read this because it's a quote. Historians say that there were numerous eunuchs, thousands of priestesses, which were prostitutes, thousands of singers, flautists, dancers, and the worship that occurred there was filled with hysteria, filled with debauchery, filled with drunkenness, filled with all sorts of sexual sin, all filled with shameless acts of mutilation. Heraclitus wrote that the morals of the temple of Diana were worse than the morals of animals, that the people who engaged in that were only fit to be drowned. That's what non-Christian historians said about the temple of Diana. It was in that culture, in that setting, that the gospel of Jesus Christ moved in power. And what we know is that God prompted, stirred in a few hearts of a few people to tell people about Jesus, the one whom they loved. Right? You're entering into a city unlike any other city they've ever been part of. A city that's going to be hostile to the message, but they're so entrapped in sin, they don't even know it. And we see this, that Paul in Acts 18 dropped off Aquila and Priscilla, and he said, hey, I'll come back, but he's going back to Athens, and he left Aquila and Priscilla there. And so it's safe to assume that those two were the ones who planted the church in Ephesus. They just couldn't help but tell people about Jesus, the one who saved them, restored them, pulled them up from the pit. They loved Jesus, and they just started telling people about Jesus. And then a little bit later in Acts 18, we see that there's a guy named Apollos, and Apollos is known in the New Testament as a mighty preacher. He was well-versed in the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament very well, and he was even preaching a lot about the baptism of John the Baptist, and he didn't know about the Holy Spirit. He didn't know the full story of the gospel. So Aquila and Priscilla found Apollos and told Apollos about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and he received Jesus as Lord and Savior. He gave his life when the Holy Spirit came upon him, and all of a sudden he started flipping things upside down. And then shortly thereafter, here comes the Apostle Paul, and Paul does what Paul does best. He reasons, he argues, he preaches, he serves. He was there for three years. He was a man who invested his life into developing leaders, disciples, and pastors. And one such pastor that he instilled to pastor the church in Ephesus was a young man by the name of Timothy. And we have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and they were both written to Timothy as he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And then when Timothy passed on, John the Apostle John became the pastor of the church of Ephesus. 
some of the greatest church leaders that we had in the early days of the church pastored that church, influenced that church in this city of filth, of, of loose immorality, of idolatry at the highest order. God was doing something phenomenal there. I mean, let's just look at this, okay? Turn with me. I want to encourage you to do this. I'm j I just feel compelled to read this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And, and on. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I want you to see what this early young church was doing in this city of Ephesus. Acts 19, verse 8. And he entered a synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, this is Paul, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is Christianity, before the congregation, he redrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now look at this, verse 10. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, this is not just Ephesus anymore, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, a great evangelistic revival was happening through the church at Ephesus. That can only happen because they loved Jesus. They loved what he did for them and they want to tell people about it. And so it just spread throughout Asia Minor. Now let's look at verse 13. Okay, this is a crazy story. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus because somehow the name of Jesus did certain things. And so he said, well, maybe we should try that. So they invoked the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's kind of funny. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Uh, who, who are you guys, right? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Bad day. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also, many of those who were now believers came, look at this, confessing and divulging their practices this is the power of God. People moving from death to life, like conviction of sin saying, I'm done with this. And look what they did. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. We're done with this. We're all in on Jesus. This is no longer right. And they counted the value of them all and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, that's not it. Now, the gospel starts to mess with the economy. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way Christianity, the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, right? That's the main worship in Ephesus. He brought no little business to the craftsmen, which means he, he employed a lot of people. He, he was making good money. But now if we jump to 29, a riot breaks out. 
The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocardus and Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And basically, they were trying to destroy them. A riot broke out because the gospel was flipping the economy over. People were no longer living, worshiping Diana and Artemis. They were no longer giving their lives to it. They were burning their books of magic and saying, we're done with it because of the love of Christ. This was a great church. They had so much going for them. Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Timothy, Apollos, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the one whom Jesus loved. Great leaders. They were taught well. Passionate for Jesus. Evangelistic fervor. All of Asia knew about Jesus. Talk about a church plant. It was the church to be at. This church was growing and thriving. They were so in love. They affected the worship of idols, cultism, magic, prostitution. The church grew and grew and grew. If you were ever to recommend a church, you'll say, hey, I'm moving to Asia Minor. Do you know of a church? People go, the church of Ephesus. That's the one. That's the one you want to be part of. 30 years after Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians. There's a man by the name of Apostle John who was the bishop of the church of Ephesus at that time was exiled to the island of Patmos because Nero was done. Nero was persecuting, grossly massacring Christians. And John was exiled because of the word. Here's an old man in his 90s. Also, one day on the Lord's Day, as we see in Revelation, that Jesus showed up and gave him a revelation, gave John a message about himself, about Jesus, to give to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's including Ephesus. Now, I want to encourage you, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Okay? Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This letter starts out with a simple blessing like pay attention to this letter you will be blessed if you read it aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are you who hear it like who are willing to like allow it to get in and to believe it blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in other words like you're going to take it and you're going to apply it you're going to put it as an anchor in your heart and then if you continue to read chapter the rest of chapter one jesus shows up and and john's like I fell as though I was dead because that's what you would do when you see the blazing presence of Jesus in his glory. I mean, this is, this is a letter. This is a message that gets your attention. And so what I want to look at is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The letter to the church in Ephesus. Jesus had something to say to the church in Ephesus. This church that was so passionately in love with Jesus that was built upon some great leaders and they did amazing things and many, 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 many people came to know the Lord Jesus and the church grew. Jesus has something to say to this church. So let's look at this. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, you you got to imagine, okay, this was written to real people at a real place at a real time in history. 
So all of a sudden you got the church gathered there and all of a sudden they're like, okay, here's a message to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, I find this kind of cool. Maybe it's a little bit self-serving, but the word angel doesn't actually mean like the angel Gabriel or Michael. It's kind of a misleading word there because in the Greek, it actually just simply means pastor or messenger. So um, yeah, you, you can make that connection, right? To the pastor of the church in Ephesus, to the messenger, to the elder of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him, who's him? This is Jesus. Jesus is speaking, and he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are the seven angels or the seven pastors who are overseeing the seven churches in Ephesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, right, the main stem of the lampstand is Jesus, and the seven are specifically the seven churches. Okay, I'm not going to get into other things into that because we could spend a lot of time there. But I just want you to know something that this is a message that Jesus is speaking specifically through the pastor to the church in Ephesus and guaranteed, guaranteed the church is like, oh my goodness, Jesus is speaking. Bring it. Jesus is the one who knows the heart of every church. He's the head of the church. He's in control of the church. He holds the leaders of the church and he's walking among the churches. He knows the ins and outs. He sees it all. Not just what's on the outside, but he knows the heart of each church. So he knows where they're doing well and he also knows where they fall short. Now every message to these seven churches, there's a pattern. There's a praise or a commendation like, hey, you guys did great. And then there's a rebuke like, here's where you kind of fell short. And then there's basically, here's how you can turn it around. Verse two and three, Jesus speaking again. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and are not and found them to be false. Like imagine being in the crowd, being like, he saw what we've been doing. He's proud of what we've done. He's given us a standing ovation. Hey, I know your works. Great job. I know that you've been laboring, you've been toiling, and you've been standing up under pressure because the church in Ephesus at this time is facing the persecution because of Nero. You're patiently standing. You're persevering. You're, you're enduring it. You're making great sacrifices. You're doing the work. Way to go. You're behaving well. But not only that, you're discerning well. You're testing those prophets who say they're prophets, but they're not. And you know the scriptures enough to be actually hear what they're saying and go, that's not right. You got theological clarity. You know your stuff. And I'm proud of you for that. Way to go. I mean, think about that for a moment. What would it feel like to be commended by Jesus? Right? Like, what would it feel like to be like, oh, he, he saw, he, he sees what I do. And he's proud of it. Like, that would be rather amazing. I mean, this is a good church. Ephesus is a good church. And he's applauding them for their right behavior. He's high-fiving them for their right belief. That's what we look for in a church, is it not? Like, that's what we ultimately want. We want a church that's going to act out on what they believe. And here's a church that's doing just that. In fact, if you go back to Acts 20, 28 through 31, 
when Paul was saying farewell to the elders at Ephesus, a real tender and emotional moment, weeping and hugging, Paul warned them that once he leaves, fierce wolves will enter the flock to devour the flock, bring in false teachings. He warned them on that. So you got to know that they were on their toes for that. In fact, we even see some of that in Ephesians chapter 6, like, hey, put on the armor of God. You've got to stand against the schemes and the strategies of the enemy. Like, you've got to be aware. And, and they were. They were. This is what happened. They hated sin. They couldn't tolerate it. We see that in verse 6. Like, they, they hated the Nicolaitans, and, and so did I. A group of people who broke away from the church that preached a totally different faith, saying that acts of the body, they're fine, so go ahead, engage in sexual immorality, engage in this, engage in that, because all that matters is the spirit. They were like, no. They weren't going to compromise with culture. They were a dynamic church. They embraced truly what Ephesians 2.10 said, that God prepared good works in advance for them to do in Christ Jesus. They were a working church. They were a toiling church. They stood and they strove and they gave it all and they sacrificed for Jesus. Dedicated. They were disciplined and discerning. And it sounds like they were standing firm, doesn't it? Right belief, right behaviors. Like what could be wrong? Right? Like on the outside, they look great. What could be wrong? This is a model church. Looks amazing. You wouldn't question a church like this with the pedigree of Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John. Like they, they got great leadership. This is real people hearing a real message at a real place in a real time in history. And this still stands as a warning or a wake-up call for you and I, for the church. Because here we go. Let's look at chapter, or, uh, verse 4. The first half of verse 4. But I have this against you. Imagine being in the room. You're being commended. I, I, I know your works. Oh, man. So appreciate it. I, I appreciate you toiling. Like, I, I know it. Awesome. And this isn't flattery. This is not ingenuous. This is real sincerity from Jesus. Like, yes. But so is this. But I have this against you. And it's almost like this hush. Like, well, what could you have against us? But I have this against you. That you have abandoned. That's a strong word. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Can you imagine the gasp? Like imagine um, husbands and wives if you, if you are married, imagine if your significant other said that to you all of a sudden at a dinner, nonchalantly, hey, I have this against you. <laughs> like, you'd be like, uh-oh. Like, this is the words of Jesus, and you have to take this serious. This is Jesus saying, I got a problem with you, church, and it's not a small thing. It's not a small deal. You cannot gloss this over. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's their redeemer. He's our redeemer. He was their restorer. He's our restorer. He's the champion of our souls, the one who resuscitated us and gifted us with new life. He's extending the church grace by telling them what they have wrong. 
He's not flattering them before. He's telling them, hey, listen, this is a real rebuke. I have this against you. You are believing right. You're behaving right. You're dedicated. You're disciplined. And you're discerning. Great. But I, your creator, your restainer, your redeemer, I have a problem with you. You have abandoned your first love. For a long time, I remember hearing this passage and people putting in the word lost. That's not the word there. And some translations actually use that word there, lost. You didn't lose the love like you lose your car keys. You don't just wake up one morning and be like, where did my love for Jesus go? As if it's not your fault. Like I hear that a lot of times in marriages that want to come in for counseling. They go, I, I just feel like I lost my love. No, I just want to be blunt. You don't lose your love. In fact, when you say that, it's actually more of an excuse for the reality of what happened. The word there is left. You've left the love. You chose to lose it. You abandoned it. The church of Ephesus, somehow this great church with its pedigree and its amazing exploits early on, somehow, way, drifted away and chose to love something else other than loving Jesus. Maybe, maybe they loved their status as a church, knowing that they were the greatest church out of the seven churches. Maybe they loved their works and what they got uh, the acclam- acclamation from their works more than they love Jesus. Maybe they loved being doctrinally light and having their theology all bowed up more than the one whom the theology points to. Maybe they just loved being right and loved pointing out the wrong in other people. Maybe they loved judging other people that are standing apart from the truth of the gospel. Maybe they fell in love with themselves more. Maybe they're like, so proud of themselves that they're not like them. This is no small deal because at the heart of this is idolatry. They have abandoned, they left the love they had at first. Their love has cooled down. I'm not saying that they don't love Jesus. I'm sure they do, but it's probably flickering out and it surely isn't the driver in their lives. It surely isn't the why they do what they do. If they do love Jesus, it's secondary. It's not primary. They have now are starting to love secondary things. The church at this moment looks good on the outside. Absolutely looks successful on the outside. It may be squeaky clean. Their morals are all tight and their theology is sound. They won't tolerate. They'll tweet this message against that preacher. And they were, they're there. They're going to stand for all of that. At one point, this church had a fiery love for Jesus. And they couldn't help but tell people about the love of Jesus. But now, it's not there. Listen, if Jesus says he has something against you, it is time to fall on your knees and listen. Church, we need to ask. We need to be honest with ourselves. Have we abandoned? Have we left the love we had at first? Have we left our first love? I know it's so easy to downplay this. Like how can my love for Jesus be the thing that I would get rebuked for? Right? Isn't Jesus more concerned about what I do, how I think, and how I behave? I mean, isn't Christianity about 
right behavior and right thinking? Why are we stressing this love? Why would I be rebuked for that? I go to church, I tithe, I serve. Isn't that what he wants? No. No. He wants your heart. You're his son and his daughter. He would rather have you than anything else that you could do for him. You see, they, the church in Ephesus, and we do this, they turned their relationship with Jesus into a religion. They left it. They abandoned that love. In Ephesians 5, Josh Barocolo did a masterful job talking through relationship dynamics and he talked about husbands and wives and really at the core of it it's a mystery of the church jesus's relationship with the church and so a lot of ways using a marital context helps us understand this love dynamic like you got married because you loved the other like you you love that person you like you wanted to pursue that person and be in that person's presence saying goodbye was so hard And so often and so many times, over and over and over, you see these marriages fall apart because they fell out of love. And the reality is they didn't fall out of love. They didn't lose that love. They chose to leave that love. And it was a slow drift away. Love will always be the hallmark of a healthy and thriving marriage. Just like love will always be the hallmark of a healthy and thriving church. But not love for things that we do, but love for Jesus. Listen, no marriage accidentally becomes a great marriage. It takes intentionality. It takes decisions and choices, constant commitment to grow that love, to nurture that love. A great marriage is one where they still date and they still send flowers. As I wrote that down, I was so convicted. I'm just going to say that. You left your first love. In the Greek here, there's an ellipsis, which basically tells us that this, this, is, this is more like an exchange. Like they were distracted. They, they exchanged their loves. That's what, they abandoned it. They, they chose to love something other than. They probably exchanged the purpose as to why they gather as a church. Why do we come together as a church? Why do they do the works? Why they toil? Why are they dedicated? Why do they stand in solid teaching? Why do they hate evil? The why, obviously, isn't because they love Jesus. It's something else. They love what they do or who they are more than they love him. They were distracted, drifted away. Listen to me, okay? Look here, okay, listen. Idols ambushes daily. They go after the heart. And what the devil wants to do in your life is to distract you from loving Jesus, to exchange your first love for something else. In fact, I'm willing to bet that the devil loves religion, loves religious people. As long as they don't love Jesus more than their religion, he's good. The devil, I believe, wants to get get the church to love what they do as a church more than why we are even having church. He'd rather have us in love with the process of being a Christian, the pragmatics of what we do, how we sing, how we gather, how the buildings look, all those types of things. He would rather have us prop up our behavior and belief instead of our love for Jesus. 
I have this against you. You left me. You stopped loving me. I'm no longer the first thing in your life. I'm no longer the, the filter that drives you. I'm no longer the thing that makes your heart beat. Like you, you left that. And, and yes, you're doing great works. And, and I'm glad that you are good. You are faithful. Awesome. You're pure and you, you hate evil. I love that. But listen, you're, I love you. I adopted you. You left this love and you've chosen, you're choosing to love other things. So what do you do when you fall out of love? Verse five, we see three things. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and repeat. Okay, write that down. Because this is not just great spiritual advice. For those of you who are married, who are thinking about getting married, this is great marital advice as well. Remember, repent, and repeat. The first three chapters of Ephesians was all about remembering the gospel, remembering the love of Christ, remembering what Jesus did through the cross. And then it gets into actions. That's front and center. Listen, restoration always starts with remembering. What are we to remember? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember where it all started. Remember how you were dead in your sin, hopeless, helpless. Remember how you couldn't get out of guilt and shame, how every night you would wonder, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this again. And you wake up with the resolve that I'm not going to do it to only find yourself doing it again. Remember how it felt to not be clean and wondering if what God thinks of you, wondering if you have worth and value in this life, remembering all of that stuff. Remember where you were and remember how God, who's rich in love, rich in mercy, came running after us, came pursuing us, sent his son to this earth to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. While we were his enemies, he still sent his son to die for us. He took on our sin. He embraced the shame willingly. He lived a sacrificial life so that you could receive the gift of life, so that you could see how much God loves you. Remember that when you didn't deserve a single thing. Remember. Remember how it was when you first tasted the forgiveness of God. Remember what it felt like to know that you had peace with God and that he loves you and that he has adopted you and that there's nothing, absolutely nothing in this world that can separate you from the Christ. Do you remember that? Do you remember the joy? Do you remember what you did? Remember how far you fall. Remember the beginning Rehearse the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over and over. This is how you love with a love that's incorruptible. When you remember the gospel and you remember your sin and you remember where you were and you remember the love of Christ, that creates an anchor inside of your soul. And that's why then he says, as you remember that, now, your present moment, you're in a car and you're driving one direction. You've got to repent. Pull over. Turn the car off. Sit and think a little bit. Don't drive faster in the wrong direction. Don't try to do more things and thinking that by doing more things, you're going to get it right. No, stop right now. Pull over. Do an inventory of your soul. Ask the Lord, have you left 
the love that you had at first. Ask him if you abandoned this, if you abandoned the love. And if so, repent. Turn 100% around. Like this is an emotional repentance, right? This isn't the, oh man, I feel so bad. I'm going to confess to you my sin. I feel horrible and, and you might feel horrible, but without action, without showing what you're going to do differently, that's not repentance. Remember how far you're fallen and repent. Stop doing other things. Stop putting other things first. Stop pursuing the pragmatics of our worship. Stop pursuing the works and thinking, that's it. Love Him. Love Him. Yes, works and all those things, they flow out of that. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your performances. He doesn't want you to go through the motions. It's not okay. Listen, church, listen. It's not okay to have your affections drawn away to something else. It's not okay for your heart to be given over to something else besides Jesus. It's not okay. It's an offense to God. Remember. Remember the heights of which you fall. Remember how it started. Repent. Pull over right now. Do an inventory. Turn around. Change your mind. Well, how? This is why I love. Do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. Now, what are first works? Well, I started thinking about when I first met Carissa, my wife. I saw her on the college campus, and let me tell you, she got my full attention. I, had, I, I couldn't stop thinking about her. Something began fluttering inside of me. I got the little goose pimples or goose bumps. I don't know which other you say. There was this giddy, hopeful anticipation that I was going to bump into her again. And days upon days, even before we began dating, I would hope that I would bump into her on campus. I would look for her on campus. I just wanted to see her. I just wanted to be in her presence, right? And, and even then, like, I would think about her in class. I would think about her at home. Like, I just wanted to woo her. And then we started dating, and I would try to be super creative in how we would spend time together with dates and flowers and notes. It was my way of, like, singing my affection over her. I just wanted to be with her. Saying goodnight or goodbye was always the worst part of the day because it would mean I would be separated from her. This thought of, when can I see you again? Even in the early years of marriage, right? Like, I would still have that heart, but over time, and, 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 and this happens, and it's so shameful to even admit, but without realizing it, we can begin to take our relationship for granted. In fact, as I, I wrote this, I was feeling the weight of it because I was just like, I haven't given my wife flowers in a while. When's the last time you've given flowers to Jesus? What did I do at first in my relationship with Carissa? I wanted to be with her. I wanted to know her. I wanted to laugh with her. I wanted to talk with her. I wanted to ask her questions. I wanted to enjoy her and her presence, to learn to be at peace that, oh my goodness, I can be loved. I dated her. I pursued her. I wooed her. I affirmed my love to her. Those are the first works. What did you do at first? when you were saved. We are to protect and nurture that love. And out of that love comes actions. 
How are we doing this with Jesus? Going to church, is it exciting or is it drudgery? Praying, you get to talk with God. Do you long to be in his presence? Do you like, have those moments where you feel like you miss him? You just sing your love and affection. Like, when was the last time? Like, when was the last time you just, you, you just had to bless his holy name and you had to tell him just for no reason how much you love him? When was the last time that happened? That's the love that we are to have. And this comes with a very sober warning. A very sober warning. He says, if you do not do this, if you do not remember, if you do not repent, and if you do not do the works you did at first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's speaking to the church. You will lose your influence. You will not shine brightly as a church. You will diminish even though outwardly you might look good. And you will eventually lose your place. This is a sober warning. And the reality is, the church of Ephesus never repented. And history tells us it eventually disappeared. Not to say that the believers didn't repent, but the church as a whole couldn't get it right. They stayed asleep. Friends, listen. I want you to hear this. Okay? So look, look here for a moment. Okay, whatever you're doing, give me two minutes. Right now, today, we have an incredible opportunity to influence the world for Jesus. And the way to do that will showcase Jesus. And the way we want to showcase Jesus is to nurture and to protect our love for Jesus, not just by digging in and doing more things and loving other things and going, hey, we're in our church. No, no, love him. Love him because out of that love becomes the motivation and the catalyst to do these works and the toil and to have it right. Church, we are hypocritical if we don't love the one we talk about. We are hypocritical if we don't love the one we sing about. We are hypocritical if we love gathering around more the words we say and what we preach and all these types of things more than him. Our love of Jesus must be our everything, our hope, our joy, our focus, our delight, our anticipation. So what has your heart? Have you left that? Have you abandoned the love you had at first? Have you become distracted? Have you exchanged it? I'm not saying that other things don't matter. They do. but we cannot downplay how significant and how important it is to love Jesus. Focus on that. He loves us so much. He loves us with this love that is surpassing all knowledge. If you need to be reminded of that, you pray and you ask the Holy Spirit to show you Remember, remember the beginning. Repent, and you do what you did at first. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to our heart. It's alive and it's active, and it cuts right to the soul. Lord, I pray for us as a church and for all of my friends out there 
wherever they're at hearing this message, I pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would awaken a love for you in their hearts that can only come from you. Lord, I pray that the church today around the world will be known not for its ultimately its right behavior and its right beliefs, but it would be known for its love for you that leads to right behavior, leads to right beliefs, that we'd be willing to live a life worthy of the gospel, willing to submit in reverence to Christ, willing to do all that we can to stand firm in the gospel. Lord, I pray for Austin Oak specifically, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and soften our hearts through the power of your spirit to see again the beauty of the gospel and to fall in love all over again with an incorruptible love. Jesus, we understand that the church is yours and we just say, have your way, speak, minister to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Blessings, friends.